0: This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire
1: them to teach with joy. Joining me on the Becoming Educated podcast today is Michael Childs. Michael began as a geography teacher in a secondary school in the West Midlands. There he became head of department and then a senior leader with responsibility for teaching and learning. Michael then relocated to the northwest, stepping out of the classroom to develop and deliver teacher training both nationally and internationally. He is now head of department in a secondary school in the northwest and is the author of the excellent Craft of Assessment. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today.
0: Thank you for having me here, Darren. It's great to be here, um, and it's good to be able to share some of the insights into Craft for uh, for the listeners.
1: Certainly, and we're gonna we're gonna delve deep into to some of the things that that you talk about and write within in craft. But before we we start, can you give us a, a whistle stop tour of your career today, and and then finish with Shane and why you came to write craft?
0: Yeah, so I suppose a little bit of an insight into my career in the sort of intro bit. But um, started teaching in the the West Midlands, trained in the West Midlands, started in, um, quite a. Um, well I wouldn't say challenging school but a school that definitely had its um, its challenges around sort of um, sort of pupil attainment and uh, sort of um, sort of expectations I suppose really so it was it was a good way to start teaching in that sense uh, straight into the deep end and um, definitely helped me to sort of understand a bit more about um, what it was to uh, really sort of um, Create a a climate for learning, I suppose, a a good classroom environment. Mm. Um, Taught there for about six, seven years. Uh, Did some, as it says, did some um, senior leadership role in teaching and learning. And then I just sort of decided that I needed to go somewhere else, really. And um, other changes, we decided to move to the Northwest. So I've been up in the Northwest now for about five or six years. Worked at a couple of schools, had a bit of time out. Um, of teaching actually for for a year or so, just to do some um, international training for for schools and uh, a bit of extra sort of um, work with the exam board, and then back in the last sort of four or five years now into uh, sort of middle leadership roles. So, but yeah, most recently in September started at a new school to um, sort of lead the geography across their trust. So quite exciting times.
1: Brilliant! That's uh, definitely a, a a great, exciting time to to, to lead across the trust. Um, so, can you share with with listeners how you came to write your book?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to write a book. I've done a lot of um, sort of authoring around sort of um, curriculum books and and uh, textbooks for GCSE and A level, and worked on a lot of those. But I always felt actually, what I really wanted was to supposed to be able to share and support new and existing teachers and and I think what's what's great about the sort of um edu book I suppose sort of culture is that more and more teachers who are in the classroom at the chalk face day-to-day are sharing and are giving their sort of insights into their classroom and sort of the strategies that they have I suppose, tried and used and shared, and th- those reflections. And I think that's really powerful. And, and I wanted to do that. And ultimately, I think I said right at the end of Craft, actually, my main aim for writing was to support teachers, um, no matter what sort of career um, stage they're at. And I think that was the sort of key drive. And to be honest, um, I suppose I, I actually wrote the book faster than I'd anticipated, which um, was. Um, was also a pleasant surprise but I think once someone was talking about it before actually on Twitter about um, how people approach writing a book and I think Dylan Williams said that he managed to write a book within like a week or two weeks one of his one of his most famous books he was writing 6,000 words a day but he'd already planned it out beforehand whereas I I, I kind of did it more like um chunk at a time so um, I had sort of a a aim of how many words I wanted to write each week and I sort of tried to stick to that but yeah really just to support teachers that was the main main drive for it, yes, and, it and it certainly does that and we're going to unpick a few of the things and I certainly enjoyed
1: it, you know, and have taken a lot from it I think one of the key things from that after reading reading that and reading one of the spotlights I went off and, and got myself a visualizer so, that's, so it had an impact on my teaching practice straight away but you kick off the book with definitions for teaching and of learning and explain how education has changed. Could you share your definitions and also share your thoughts on how education has changed in your time as a teacher?
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's changed significantly um, from when I first started teaching, especially that move away from all the sort of um, discovery-based learning that was there. Um, that was particularly sort of <clears throat> quite Popular at that point, and um, <clears throat> I remember when I was observed one year, a couple of years into teaching, and we had someone come in and do some training. And it was all about set up this carousel activity where the, where the people would go around and they would um, discover the information, and then they'd come back and create this poster and that, add it all in. And someone I and I thought, you know what, I'll give it a go because it's it's all part of the all part of the teaching learning drive at the school and this person was obviously quite influential at the time. So I thought, yeah, it must be right, give it a go. So I gave it a go and then the assistant head came in and watched <clears throat> and said, Oh, that's really good. That's an outstanding lesson. That, um you really took aboard those ideas that, that that sort of speaker had discussed and it was all uh great and fun, brilliant, outstanding teacher. It was wonderful. Um but then like a couple of lessons later that it would be like I'd try and discuss it with them again and go through what they'd done and they just couldn't remember it and I think I soon realised actually we were spending I suppose during that right at the early stage of my career too much time creating um, the sort of uh, fairground sort of lessons because we wanted pupils to be engaged and, and actually the engagement really I've, I learned quite quickly is actually with the subject itself and empowering pupils to understand that actually the more they become knowledgeable the more powerful that is for them as as um, sort of a uh, future global citizen so I think it sort of steered quite quickly away from that discovery based learning it went through the waves of, of um, differentiated learning objectives almost some and, and so forth and heavy marking policies and, and all sorts and um, sort of learning styles and PLTS I think I've, I think I've erased those out of my mind I can't remember what they stood for now but they were hideous anyway but um, and then sort of I suppose since about, about five or six years where the sort of evidence based approaches has really sort of to- took hold is not it and the cognitive science has really sort of come at the forefront of education and I know obviously that some some teachers are a bit sceptical about it and some are like, well, we should still stick to some of these engaging sort of lessons, but we can't ignore the science. And I think that uh, it's about, I suppose, moving away from the idea of we're not being evidence based, but we're being evidence informed and therefore using that sort of science to support how we approach lessons and, and what would work best for the pupils that are in front of us. But I think we know now that actually, if we leave them to it, then actually that's not going to be powerful for them to, um, to sort of make that knowledge stick. Um, and I suppose I talk I talk about what I see as sort of, I suppose, the ingredients to however, how any teacher should really approach process. And at the start of what can I talk about this idea of teaching to the top, we shouldn't have any sca- uh, scaffold or we shouldn't have a ceiling, where we want pupils to get, um, the idea of scaffolding up rather than scaffolding down. Just that whole power of um, getting people as close to the top as you can. Um, Asking lots of questions. Can't ask enough questions, I think. That's really powerful. Sort of modelling excellence. Lots of modelling in lessons. Um, Checking for understanding regularly. Lots of retrieval. And uh, that timely feedback to feed forward. And I think also, just because there's that sort of ingredients that would support Uh, learning doesn't mean that you're going to do everything within that lesson doesn't mean it's it's a tick box and I think Tom Sherenson talks quite passionately about the idea that uh, he shared the research around Rosenstein's principles and, and the importance of that in teaching but actually it's not a tick box it's not about saying okay I'm planning my lesson I need to make sure I do x y and z and tick 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 it's about what what am I doing today what do I want students to know and understand and how can I best approach that and teach that and how can I bring in some of these uh, particular strategies?
1: Certainly, I think you've articulated that, that incredibly well, and I like what you said about being, being research-informed and, and critical of it, but also recognising recognizing the science and that we do need to take note and, and add that to our teaching repertoire. So we're going to go through some of the, the themes in craft, and first question on that regard is how do we condense knowledge, and why is this important for the learning process?
0: Yeah, so I think that um, a lot of the times I suppose that we we get in a habit in schools whereby every pupil has an exercise book and that's fine and, and they, they, they uh, write in their exercise book every lesson, they get checked by senior leadership and teachers mark them in, in inverted commas and put lots of red pen on them and they keep more neat dates and titles or underlined etc etc etc. But I think we lose The point of actually what are they there for and and I often say to people actually this is your these are your sort of um, subject notes these are your these your knowledge notes they're they're meant to be um, there for you to use regularly it's meant to be a tool in which they can go back and refer to and I think that I suppose it's lose that lost that sight whereby we have fallen into a trap in schools where we need to have an exercise book because that's just what we need to do well actually we need to have a knowledge book that's there for pupils to become a powerful tool to support learning otherwise we're just ticking a box and we're just having an exercise book for the sake of an exercise book just because that's what we've done all the time Um, and I think that it's that idea that whatever we whatever knowledge we instill and uh, want pupils to develop in the lesson how can they then? turn that into something that's going to be powerful for them to, to use outside of the lesson and to use in preparation for any sort of um, assessment that they might do or any sort of mock exam, maybe or external exams in the future. And I think a lot of the times exercise books are put out at the start of a lesson, pupils pick them up, they do the notes, they go back into a box and they never leave the classroom. Uh, other than to, to Mark or whatever else and what's the point. Um, so I talk really passionately about the idea that, I start off with the sort of ideology of, um, or the example of of Abigail, year 10 pupil, got all these notes, doesn't know what to do with them. And actually we, we have a sort of, I suppose, a duty as teachers to to create, help, help support pupils to create notes that are effectively condensed and, and organised. And I think it becomes, more and more important as they get into A level, and more and more important as they go into sort of university, undergraduate college sort of um, stage in their their sort of um, education journey. And I think that if we don't give them those skills and develop that from an early age, right at the start, we do them a bit of a disservice. And I think it comes back as well to that whole idea around the, the sort of memory model and trying to reduce cognitive load. So not only when we present and condense the knowledge as teachers, um, we also want to make sure that what pupils have got in front of them is effectively condensed. So it doesn't, it's not cognitive, cognitive overload. And I think a lot of the time, especially you see it a lot and a lot of girls books look really good. They look they're really nice to pick up. They're all really fancy, all got things highlighted in that lot. And I always say to them, what, what are you highlighting for? Oh, because I think that's really important actually well sometimes it is but sometimes I say to them that can actually be a distraction when you go back to look at it um, and you use it as a tool for revision and often people say oh boys books are scruffy they they just they just rush and actually I mean personally my handwriting is not great so mine's a bit of a doctor's scroll but it doesn't mean that what I'm writing isn't um sort of effective it isn't correct it just means that I don't present it as well. And I think that we get quite hung up on presentation rather than actually supporting that condensing of notes. I mean, obviously we know that sometimes boys can be lazy and sometimes boys will rush it. And that's that can be the case. But often if we delve deep into their book, they actually are uh, trying to uh, produce effective notes. And it's, and I think it comes back to the idea as well. I talk about when we're supporting them to condense knowledge, that being sort of habits for learning. And the more that we give them opportunities to practice and the more we do it consistently, the more it becomes sort of um, sort of automatic for them. And then I talk about the idea as teachers that we, we break it down, we do it step by step. We don't give that overload cognitively. And I think also stripping away the whole PowerPoint, I think come back to my early stages of my career, it was all about PowerPoint, teach the teacher of PowerPoint, fancy transitions and pictures and colors and everything. Um, and now you, some people will probably say, my well, PowerPoints are the most boring thing they've ever seen, but it, it might be boring, but it's it's condensed. It's to the point. And I think it's that key thing. Like If, if, I, want, if I want people to understand a really important fact a really important definition. I, I want them to understand what industrialization is or I want them to understand what hydraulic action means. I just literally want that on that screen at that one time. No other distractions, no other pictures or or uh, tasks or whatever else. I want them to just focus on that process. And I think that's the important bit about that condensing. And I think I, said, I say part of it, and it's what Andy Farvey sort of talked about as well when he summarised it, Um, which i added into the chapter was that less is more i think that's really important and i still see a lot of these fancy powerpoints and i think who who are you creating them for that's that's what i question are you creating them for um you because if you are then you you don't necessarily need to do so much are you creating for the pupils because if you are maybe is um more limiting and hinders their sort of um, opportunity to condense effectively or are you creating it for someone who walks in Um, and is it the case that actually when some people when people observe a lesson or walk into a lesson that people worry that if there's no PowerPoint there the lesson hasn't been planned and I think that is that is probably something that worries me at times I suppose but yeah I mean that's what I, I feel is important and I think then when it's effectively condensed, then they can take it away and actually use it as a as a powerful tool for for reflection and revision.
1: Certainly, I like that idea of the students generating powerful condensed notes through having that focus and precision on it. And it links to what you said about delivering new information to pupils. And you mentioned four cogs to expert explanation. Could you share what your four cogs to expert explanation are.
0: Yeah, so I talk fondly about my my own geography teacher, Mr. Byrne, who, um, he was fantastic. Sort of inspired me, I suppose, um, when I was uh, teaching and talk about sort of the idea of having passion. He had real passion for his subject and I think that's really important. I think that coming back to the PowerPoint, the PowerPoint becomes like a, a safety blanket for teachers and actually go back, strip it back, why are you teaching? You want to... Um, share that love of that subject that you teach therefore that one part of that explanation or expert explanation is having that passion for your subject and sharing and showing that passion to pupils and I think that's really important. I um, talked about how like you watch some teachers and they love their subject so much so they 've got the pupils right there on the edge of their seats all the time sharing some anecdotes of of um what they they've sort of experienced within the subject and you can just feel that love for that subject and i think that's really important i think that helps pupils to um really engage with with um the, the subject and also takes away that idea where we said we were making the lesson fun but actually the fun comes in the way in which you impart that sort of uh, love of the subject talk about idea of precision which comes back to that point about stripping it back condensing it give them the main things that they need to know don't include all these other extra bits because you think actually the more knowledge you give them the more knowledgeable they would come but actually you want to focus on what knowledge you want them to know mm. um, and build that stage by stage i talked about i think i gave the sort of analogy of the mot test um which uh, which i think sort of sums that whole aspect of um being more precise Um, And they talk about rehearse, and I think that's really important because a lot of the time, new teachers will come into the profession and they are knowledgeable about the subject, they're fresh from university, they've got that um, sort of uh, understanding. But obviously, as we know, what we teach um, as part of specifications in whatever sort of country that we're in, it inevitably leads to aspects of subject that may not have been something that we would have done. Uh, degree level, and therefore, I think this time should be put aside in schools for for teachers to um, rehearse and practice explanation. I think that's really important because the last thing you want is to be delivering something and being hesitant about it. Because what happens then? Is that it breaks down that precision. It breaks down that passion because you don't feel comfortable. And then also cognitively and and sort of condense um why uh, sort of approach. Then it means that it's it's quite fragmented. Um, and then the idea of delivering. So the way in which you deliver it all comes back to those bits about precision, rehearse passion, breaking it down, reducing that cognitive load. And I think also, I suppose, and I've learned this more and more in the last sort of couple of years, is that actually don't be afraid if, if an explanation not going right to just stop and take Take a minute and start again. Say to people, actually, this is not working. This is this is not how I envisage this and, and this is not where I want to be. So let's start again. Let's look at it from a different angle. Because we know that we might approach something and have a have an idea about how we want to approach it. But when we get to a lesson, it might may not necessarily work and we may lose pupils um, at that point. And I think that becomes back to what I think David. Dow said about learning that learning is messy and it's not it's not uniform and actually I suppose that's why lesson plans have had their shelf life if you like because you can plan a lesson all you like and you can plan how you want to deliver it but if something doesn't work at that point it has to change so you have to be adaptable as well in what you're what you're delivering.
1: Certainly, thank you. I love I love the, the idea of of rehearsing and, and the in the in the MOT analogy. It, it really it really brings to brings to sharp focus the, the importance of having really solid ex, explanations. I mean I think that explanations are are, are almost king in the classroom. Um moving on to the next bit, how do we create learners that are truly reflective? Yeah, I
0: spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I think that um Ultimately, we want them to understand that actually, when they're in lesson and when they're learning, that learning doesn't happen within that lesson. Um, and I, I think I stood up at the last school and I actually said that to teachers. I actually said, "When pupils are finished in that lesson, they may not have learned anything at all." And I and I got quite a ooh, quite a real stark sort of look on faces, like shock. What has he just said to us? And then I said, actually, we need to see that we need to pupils to understand that when they're in lesson, when they finish a the lesson, that they may not have learned anything at that point. Because we know that through the sort of um, cognitive load theory and learning that learning is defined as a change in long term memory. So we need them to understand that just doing just being in school and be uh, doing the lesson every day, every week. does doesn't mean that they will necessarily become effective, historians, mathematicians, etc, because they need to learn that they've got to go away and do something else. And I think that comes back to this idea that you can have really great pupils and they can behave and they can do everything you ask, uh, period one to period six or whatever it is for the day and go home. But actually, unless they understand that they need to be more reflective, what they learn they need to go away and do something with it and they need to constantly review it but actually they won't um, reach their potential so seeing that that idea that they need to um, continually review knowledge and become more reflective and I talk about Sarah an English teacher so a couple of years why she doesn't understand that actually even though she's taught it really well Christmas Carol to her year 11 weeks down the line they've still forgot it because she hasn't built in time for them to review it whether that be through her sort of retrieval practice um, opportunities or through giving them um, additional sort of um, practice outside of the lesson so I think first and foremost pupils need to understand the reasons why they need to be reflective and I think we need to not shy away from sharing that cognitive science with pupils because I think Inevitably, like anything, if we want to get a buy-in and we want to get an understanding, regardless of whether it's with staff or pupils, whoever it is, we need to share the reason why we're doing it. So, share it with staff, share it with pupils, and I found that really powerful. And I often share lots of um, sort of uh, sort of uh, analogies of this idea that anyone who who is famous, like a footballer or or an athlete or an um, an actor or an artist of of some sort, they don't become famous. They don't become um, skillful and world beaters without constant, constant practice. So I say to them, that's what they need to be doing. So making them aware of it, sharing that cognitive science with them is important first of all. And then it links back into what Rosenshine said, about regular daily reviews and, and weekly reviews. So then it's then it's the question. Okay, so how can we build that into into the lessons and the day to day sort of um, aspect of school? And I think Kate Jones talks a lot about. Obviously, people see retrieval practice sometimes as just being quizzes, but actually, there's lots of ways we can do retrieval practice. But the core aspect of it is both teachers and pupils understanding that it's from memory. Um, so. Yesterday I was teaching Year 11, and um, we had about five ten minutes after the lesson. We had we had taught, we'd done the bit that we needed to do. We'd done some application work. I said to them, "Right, so just turn to your backy your books, blank piece of paper. I'm going to ask you these series of questions." which was just about like ten questions. I hadn't planned it or anything. Um, so I asked them these ten questions from memory, and, and I said, "If you can't answer it at the moment, just put a little star next to it," um, and then. Got to the end, and I said to them, "I said, well, why have I actually put a star next to it?" And uh, one one lad said, um, "He said, oh, because they're the things we need to go back to, because we don't know them yet, so they're not embedded in our sort of long term memory." And I've only been at the school for sort of six weeks, but they've already learned that actually that's really important. And I said, "Right, so you've got to go away and overlearn that now, because that's what's really important, because you haven't remembered that because it's not embedded." Um, and I think that that helps them to see the sort of reasons as to why it's important and that and like I said I've only been there six seven weeks but that has started to already feel like it's um it's part of what they need to do and I give lots of other strategies in the book. So memory dumps are really powerful so it doesn't have to be a quiz just a blank piece of paper write write down everything you know about x you know you've got a couple of minutes and always say to them okay so now go back to to your notes go back to some sort of source what are you missing okay so whatever you're missing add it in and now that's your focus go back and review that um talk about sort of drawing as well image recalls can be quite powerful idea of vocab races and um so that idea of of a, a ripple as well i quite like that sort of analogy of especially when they're trying to explain something or, or develop an idea, see it as a ripple in a pond. Um, how, many, how many times can you develop that uh, further? So I'll give the example in the book of sort of if, uh, if the history teachers are doing sort of causes of World War One, World War Two, they put it in the middle, right, you've got five minutes, write down those causes, how do they link together? Um, and then the other bit that I think is really key is sharing that sort of learning journey with them that um, whole process of this is the big picture. This is what we're doing for the for the next series of weeks. This is where it fits. Um, and I think that's really important because unless they, if they don't understand what it is that they're learning, they can never go back and reflect on it. Um, and I also share, I think it's really important to share how to effectively revise and be reflective learners with students. So you'll be surprised at how many Students don't know how to create a revision card, for example, and sharing with them actually it's one bit of information on one side and the, the definition on the back. And I actually demonstrated to my year 11s this week how to do that. Um, and then showing them how to do the Leckner system, which again helps them to do that sort of continual review. So, yeah, I would say they're the sort of key bits. And then in the final bit, I talk about triangulating it with parents i think we miss a trick often but actually we want parents to be involved so at my previous school over the last couple of years we did a sort of um, parental uh, engagement evening workshop even every year for year 11 usually fell between sort of this time parents would come in with their with their pupils that uh, their child sorry come in and they would um go around and do a carousel around the different um subjects, and each subject would do a workshop, and they would um, share with parents how they could support their child to effectively reflect and revise, and they actually had an opportunity to practice it in those subject workshops. We did a whole sort of presentation at the start of the evening about what, what does it mean to be an effective learner? How can you support as parents? So I think that's trying to bring that back, actually, because we can we can share it with pupils, and we can continue to go over it and unless they've got that additional sort of support at home. Um, I even talked to sometimes and and some of the pupils at the new school have, have smiled about it and just said, "Oh, we can't do that." I said, even like, get the dinner table in the evening with with whoever, get the revision cards out, give them the revision cards, get them to test you on it around the dinner table. Um, but that's not cool enough, I don't think, for some for. For the teenagers of our day, so uh, but yeah, I think that's really important. That last sort of, I suppose that last sort of uh, loop, isn't it, about closing that loop, that triangulation.
1: Yes, certainly, I think that what you highlight there in terms of teaching children how to revise and also helping the parents and teaching them how they can support the children to revise and reflect at home—that's that's incredibly powerful and it's part of the loop that we often forget and and, and don't delve into. Um, Next part of, of the book looks at, looks at assessment and you suggested that there needs to be a culture shift to modify how assessments are being used for it to be a more decisive pedagogy tool that supports the facilitation of learning. You can you share a little bit about how we get assessments perhaps wrong and, and how, how you perhaps do it now?
0: Yeah, I think in the past, I think lots of assessments have inherently been about um, providing some sort of um, data, for, for school leaders, and I uh, suppose it's become an inevitable accountability tool. And I think that um, we, we're in a situation where obviously it's quite heavy loaded towards year 11 results every year, heavy loaded towards um, year 13 results. And therefore, we get sort of a tunnel vision approach in schools whereby this is the pupils' target, this is where they need to be, they're not here let's keep testing them, let's keep putting high stakes tests in place, let's get teachers to grade them, oh, and then we get to the end of the year, oh, and they still haven't made improvements, oh, and the grades still haven't changed, oh, actually, you said that they get a four, but they got a six, or you said they get a six, but they got a four, why is that? Well, it's because, or ultimately, the way in which assessments are written, the way in which assessment are used in schools, they just don't, Take into account how external assessments are sat um, at, by through exam boards and official exams, and I think that's the problem. I think that's where we've got assessment wrong. We've spent too much time focusing on levels, grades, saying that a pupil is a four or five when actually we don't really know. Um, and I talk about like years ago, I fell in a trap, and that's because I didn't really know any better at the start of my career. I just I just saw what others were doing, and thought that was the right thing to do. When I'd have a piece of work, and I'd use that piece of work, and I'd create loads of criteria for that piece of work, some artificial criteria for what four, five, six, and seven of input example in the book. Which, when I looked back at it, I was like, cringe time for that. But um, and then I'd tick off where they were, and and then say what they need to do next. Even the worst bit was that. Some schools were doing like 4A, 4B, level 4C, and it's like, oh my god, how can you say that you've got a 4A and a 4C? Like I used to pull, pull my hair out thinking, well, is this a 4A? Is this a 4C? And I don't really know. Um, and inevitably, especially with levels, we lost sight of the fact that they were originally designed for end-of-key stage three and looking at it holistically. And then grades ultimately are designed for the end of the GCSE. Or the end of the A level again, holistically, not during or throughout, and inevitably, lots of teachers have been, I suppose, metaphorically um, challenged for their grade entries or challenged for their predictions. When actually predicting grades is a, a fool's game because you can't do it. Um, And I think it comes back to why are we assessing? What is the purpose of it? Well, we're assessing because we want to know what pupils don't know and what they need to know, um, where we need to close those gaps. And I think it comes back to that idea of what Harry Fletcher-Wood talked about and Dylan Williams actually seeing that we need to load formative assessment and sort of put on the backburn summative assessment. So it's very infrequent and load formative assessment throughout the academic year so that it becomes uh, a responsive teaching tool and not seeing it as a constant um, measure to look at to decide our teachers or our teaching groups are on track to achieve their grade. And I think if we do that, we have a better chance of actually people's reaching their potential exceeding their potential because the focus is on knowledge and not on uh, superficial sort of levels or grades as it has been. And I, I talk about this idea of having a cumulative assessment approach because lots of lots of time like you you would teach teach a unit, assess it at the end, teach a unit, assess it at the end, teach a unit, assess it at the end. Problem is that as we know with the cognitive science, we're leaving five or six weeks before we go back and test. And actually that's not helpful because we we get to the end of that end of topic test as it used to be. Oh, and they don't know this and they don't know that. Or it's too late by then. Why have we left it five or six weeks before we fix it? Or put something in place to fix it. And we do exactly the same again. Actually, I actually talk about this idea of doing regular frequent formative assessments um, that build cumulatively over time and allow for those layers of knowledge to constantly be sort of revisited and reviewed. I gave give the example in the book of this idea of a um a module that might be on uh the world war and then layering it up over time. And I think also not seeing assessment as it has to be, like a, a long test actually seeing assessment as being it could be a, a small what what I call like a silent and sustained sort of activity. Or it might be through the use of hinge questioning at the end, they can be quite powerful. The idea of using multiple choice questions to identify misconceptions. And I think if we see it more as that, we have a much better um, sort of tool to support learning. And I don't think in the past that's what it's been. I think it's been a tool to support and justify teachers' existence in the classroom, I suppose, which. Which is a shame, really, and I don't think it's actually benefited pupils in in the long term. And I think also talk about question as well, questions such a powerful sort of assessment tool, mm-hmm. and the way in which we use that questioning to actually help help teachers to um, gauge where pupils are at and act and steer the lesson where it needs to go or revisit and go back. And I think that's really important as well. I suppose that's why seeing as. Re- seeing it as a responsive teaching tool is more powerful than than seeing it as like um the idea of just being formative or just being summative assessment.
1: Certainly I like that idea of of spinning it around to to be that to that formative assessment away from 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 grades and away from assessing that levels. It's it's using things like questioning and your responsive teaching to to be able to assess where the children are. Um, then thinking about it, marking has become synonymous with with feedback, and, it, and it's certainly a, a burden on, on teachers' time. I mean, I, you can see all the the surveys that where marking comes out on top is is the biggest workload burden that we have. How then do we become more effective and efficient at providing feedback so that we can feed forward?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I suppose when I did crafts and and did the F and T. I didn't really realise actually there's more to feedback than you first realise, and hence why it's sort of evolved into the feedback pendulum, which is um, which is well out, well well um, at a point where it's nearly finished and, and coming out. So I think the important bit is about understanding that feedback is not marking, and, and I think they've been used interchangeably in the past, and um, people think that if we're going to give feedback, we need to give a mark, and I haven't given pupils a mark for four or five years, maybe now. And um, I think that's really important because they will want that mark and they'll want that grade. But again, if we go back to what we've already said, 90% of those marks will not be accurate. And they will not be accurate for all those various reasons that we've talked about. So we need to move towards more sort of seeing feedback as being opportunities to use that responsive teaching method to then redirect pupils where we want them to go. And I think talk about those sort of key principles of feedback in that it's timely, it's granular, it creates that receptive culture, and it really helps pupils to um, sort of move forward. And I think that, like you said, teachers spent hours and hours marking. And um, I remember one year at one school, a senior leader said to me, you haven't marked this girl's book. I said, well, I don't need to mark it. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, she doesn't need any feedback from me. She's done what she needs to do. Yeah, but you need to market. I said, why? I said, what what well, for what reason would you want me to market for? Because that's the policy. I said, well, I said, I can market for the policy. I said, but I'm marking it for the pupil. So I said, I can do that. I said, but she doesn't need feedback. So I'd be doing it for the sake of doing it. Oh, but you need to do that. I said, well, I don't need to do that. That's what I'm saying, I don't need to do it for learning. I need to do it by the sounds of it for the policy. I said, I can do that if you want me to. I'll be compliant as as, as a teacher at the school, that's fine. As it was in the end, that particular girl got an A star. And I think that it comes back to that point of we give feedback where we need to, where it's necessary. And sometimes just because there's not feedback in the book did not mean that I hadn't given that girl feedback. I would have maybe given a feedback through verbal feedback, through um, through question, and I think that we have to not see that if there's no marks that people hasn't received feedback, and that's why I think that we need to detach those sort of two sort of um, phrases. And I think that, like I say, I think they've become so meshed together that uh, it's just it's just a minefield. Um, so I really think that's really important, and. I think that um, the important bit as well about there's lots of policies out there seeing schools where we need to do a what went well and even better if well, what if they haven't got an even better if to do? Why are we, why are we insistent that it needs to have one for the sake of having one? Um, or two stars and a wish or or giving people more than one target because one target isn't enough when actually one target is sufficient. And if we go right back to what we said at the start about cognitive overload, one granular target, one highest sort of action step for that people to do to work on, is more powerful than giving them lots and lots and lots of targets. It comes back to that idea as well. We want to really chunk it down. We want to want them to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I think especially with grades as well. Dylan Williams talked about how once you give them a grade, there's a big distractor. They we'll just focus on that grade, not bother about anything else. Or what did you get? What did you get? Or what did you? And I think also that idea of not seeing, um, supporting pupils to not see that intelligence is fixed because often pupils will not want to be receptive to feedback because oh last time I got a grade two and I meant to get a five or... I'm just I'm not going to do it or I've got a target with grade nine I'm never going to get there I'm on a grade six according to my teacher I've got no chance so it's just like get get rid of that I always say to people no matter what like I said at the start of September to my year 11s you're all going to get a grade nine and they just looked to me I said, well, that's what we're going to aspire to. Let's not worry about anything else. I'm not going to tell you what what grades you've got in the work, how many marks you got. You're just all going to tr- get to grade nine because that's that's the level at which I'm going to support and teach teach you the content uh, for the subject. And I think that um, it was just a little that little sort of um, instilling that belief and uh, that they can all get there. And I think that um, it brought it home to me because one of the colleagues said, oh, um, you'd said to to our pupils in, in sort of a session that you had with them, or they can all aim for a grade nine, and they come in smiling and saying, oh, Mr. Charles says we can do this, we can do that. And actually, it's it's about motivating our pupils to to believe in themselves. And I think if we say, right, this, don't worry about the grades, you just, you're going to all try and get a grade nine, don't worry about that, you'll get that grade nine, if you do X, Y and Z over the course of, of your GCSE. But through that, the focus is not on the number of marks you got. The focus is on, well, if you've got some feedback, then that work wasn't where it needed to be. And just switch that mindset. And this is what you need to do to get to the next step. And then support them in doing that and give them time to do that. I think, again, it comes back to why are we giving the feedback? If a policy says we need to give feedback, that's fine. We'll give that feedback. But then give them time to reflect on that and actually act on that and I think a lot of, a lot of schools just looking for teachers to have red pen in the book and oh they're giving feedback it's fine And actually nothing else has happened after that and, and I think that's really sort of a worry because they need to have time to actually work on it um, and I think process that feedback is really important and I think they I also talk about this idea of um, like any sort of feedback. And having done a lot of research over the last couple of um, couple of months with the new book, it's such it's such an unknown sort of aspect of our life that no matter who we are, we constantly get feedback through our nonverbal cues, our verbal cues, whether we raise our eyes at pupils or whether we look at them and think, "Oh no, that's not right." So we have to also be mindful of that because we're giving feedback all the time, nonverbally and verbally. And I think that, um, that that's, that's sort of really important that pupils are getting feedback in lots of different lessons all the time in so many different ways. And I suppose it can become quite overwhelming for them. And I think that we need to give them that time and space to, to respond to it and also build that relationship with them. Because if there isn't that relationship there in, the, in that classroom, they're not going to want to receive feedback. They're not going to want to engage with it. It's not going to be receptive. And actually, it's not going to help them to move forward. And I think sometimes it's a case of, oh, I have given them feedback, but they didn't want to accept it. So I've done my bit. But actually, we need to sort of work to create that culture where they want to receive it, embrace it, they feel comfortable. And uh, again, switching that mindset, because all all aspects of the the attribution theory, whereby lots of people won't want to, embrace feedback. They won't want to share their ideas and their thoughts because they don't want to be seen as um, less intelligent than their peers. They'd rather just be seen as lazy. So, yeah, so I think if my advice with with feedback is strip it right back, don't spend hours marking, Um, whole class feedback has been sort of real at the forefront as as an opportunity, but don't see that just as the opportunity to give feedback. Um, And then, make it granular create that receptive culture and really use it as a tool to empower pupils to to move them forward rather than being a tool to uh, meet a policy within the school. Certainly,
1: I like what you said there about creating that culture for them receiving it, and also like what you, what you what you mentioned about only giving feedback when it's needed. And and you said something said a, a, a bit about if you, if you got some feedback in your book, it's because your work isn't where it needs to be. And I like I like that kind of thinking around feedback that it has to be actionable and have to be given time for action. I really enjoyed reading the the teacher spotlights in in the book can you can you share the the thinking about putting them in and could you share some of the ideas shared by some of the some of the teacher
0: spotlights yeah I think they were really sort of it really brings the book to life I suppose it's like anything isn't it when you you share strategies and and the research it can be difficult when you're a busy teacher and um, you want just to see and feel the sort of almost like um, looking through the keyhole of another teacher, another practitioner um, and get their sort of take on it and what they do. And I think that uh, in particular, sort of Jack's spotlight on how he uses the visualizer is really powerful and he puts some examples in of how he does it um, and the impact that's had. That had. And it's, I, I like the, the pupil voice in there as well. So they, as a school, they're clearly sort of, triangulated that and engaged with um, pupils to create that receptive culture that we talked about. I mean, clearly that to do what they do with the visualise and have pupils work on and discuss it and talk about it and, and unpick it, they need to have pupils that want to embrace that. And it comes back to the creating that receptive culture and that ability to not feel threatened by that feedback publicly uh, in front of their peers. So I think that, that was a really powerful sort of spotlight I really like the spotlight around sort of that visual harvesting in the first book from Roseman about how we can use visual, visuals to support learning, and that builds in the sort of idea the dual coding theories as well. I think that's really sort of powerful. I really wanted to include subjects that weren't necessary given a voice, especially like dance. Often, dance is overlooked in things like um, academic sort of. Literature, and I think that was really important to share. Actually, it it was a book that could be um, utilized by all teachers across the subjects, and that's why, as well, I I thought it was really important to include a a primary uh, voice. I thought that was important to have Aidan in there and give his views on on, um, assessment in the primary sort of sector, and then having uh, Flavio as well sort of unpick the science on how Seneca supports people to become more reflective and sort of build that knowledge and, and enhance that retrieval was, I thought it was really important as well. And yeah, I think overall, the main reason for doing it was to, like I say, see that lens um, or look, look through that keyhole of um, someone else's classroom. And I think that helps to bring any book to life, I think, because otherwise, it's just me saying, well, here's the research, here's how you could apply it, but then let's see how someone else has applied it as well, and I think it just helps to enhance the, the overall sort of um, story of craft, I suppose.
1: Certainly did, and as I mentioned at the start, I, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed the. You mentioned their jacks. Teacher spotlight and how you use to visualise, and I'm trying to implement that in my own practice. So it definitely had a, had an impact there. Finally, before we move on to what I call my, my final three, Michael, and these are the three questions I ask every guest: is how important how important is it to develop a culture of learning in your classroom, your department, and and your school, and, and what do you hope readers get from Craft?
0: Yeah, and I think that's why I asked uh, Sam Strickland to do a bit because as a principal and how he he's embedded those elements of craft because ultimately craft isn't anything unique and new. We, we, we all spend time condensing learning. We all spend time encouraging pupils to reflect. We all assess as teachers. We all give feedback. We all give some target-driven improvements. It's just a way of bringing it all together in that sort of analogy of, of the, how you can craft assessment. And I think that for any culture, it comes back to that consistency that ultimately schools need to be consistent in their approach and be relentless in the way in which that that is delivered. But that consistency comes in, comes into sharing it with staff, getting that understanding, sharing the research. This is why we're doing it. This is going to, ha- how it's going to help support your pupils, giving staff the, um, the support to do that. And uh, modelling examples can be really powerful. I talk in the new book about, about around feedback in terms of to teachers, so the whole idea of teacher education and how we can really craft that to make it powerful for for teachers. Getting the buy-in from from parents as well and the pupils, and I think that whole triangulation, if we can, in schools get that consistency, that clear vision and understanding from all those stakeholders, then that's going to help to really support embedding those elements of craft. Because ultimately, if for example, pupils don't understand how to be reflective learners, we don't support them in that we don't model it, we don't demonstrate it soon as they leave the classroom, they won't go home and do it. And equally, if we don't have that support from parents, if we don't share it with parents the importance of it, they're just going to go home and they're not going to, to engage in it. They're not going to spend the time reflecting. And I think that um, as teachers, we spend a lot of time doing a lot for pupils and for parents in, in the communities that the schools serve. But invest that time as well, not just in what you're doing as a teacher or as a, as a leader in the school, but also investing that time in sharing why we do it with parents, with pupils, and continually sort of having that relentless, uh, I suppose, unforgiving approach that actually we're doing it because it will make a difference. And the more we do it together, the more the difference it will make.
1: I like that idea of that relentless, unforgiving approach to to, to essentially improve the, the outcome for our students, which is why we do all the work we do. Um, before we move on to the, the final three, Michael, can you share with, with listeners where they can buy craft and, of course, where they can pre-order your, your upcoming book, uh, The Feedback Pendulum, and also where they can connect with you on, on social media?
0: Yeah so it's probably a good time to record this actually because um half term deal with with John Cat directly so I think it's half term 50 i think if, if i remember rightly but yeah you can get 50% off craft at the minute so it's quite a bargain really I think it's about 5 5 pounds 6 pounds um so you can get it directly from John Cat or you can get it from Amazon uh new book you'll be able to get it directly from craft uh, from craft from um on cat uh soon and um you can pre-order it from from Amazon at the minute hopefully it might be out a bit sooner but at the minute the plan is for it to be released on the 8th of January which coincides with my birthday so it's worked out quite well It'll be a little birthday present publication day um so yeah and then join join me follow me on twitter um underscore chiles and uh I hope that um, I share things that are that are useful. I try to share share um, examples of strategies from craft that maybe are not were not necessarily in the book at the time, and try and share those. And always like to share them freely for for teachers and some anecdotes. I like to share those and occasionally I like to get into a few debates. Um, but always uh, I like to see those debates as being sort of um, the opportunity to sort of. Challenge, challenge the status quo, maybe, or to to sort of um, have that sort of um, sort of uh, constructive dialogue with other with other practitioners out there.
1: No, certainly, and, and towards a great space for that. And, and I also thoroughly enjoyed your your updates on the remodeling of your kitchen. I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed, enjoyed the seeing your hard work come through fruition There. Um, so when I on to the final three questions, these are the questions that I ask every guest. And my first one to you, Michael, is. What book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career?
0: I think uh, Make Every Lesson Count by Andy Farby and um, Sean Allison. I think that was really sort of transformational in like how teachers approach um, their sort of lessons and and how they approach those different principles of teaching. I think that was really a really powerful sort of um, literature for teachers. So that's probably one of the ones that probably would have had the biggest impact in the last sort of um, four or five years. I think it was out, but probably about four, three or four years ago. So that would be probably the biggest one, I would say.
1: Right. Thank you very much. And my my second question is, if you could give one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be?
0: I think be relentless in how you... um, and how you set up your classroom and your climate for learning. Don't give in. And uh, I think if you have that relentless approach, and you're consistent within the, the four walls of your classroom, then you can you can be sure that pupils would appreciate that. And I think that like I say that unforgiving approach for wanting them to learn and not not give in to these fun lessons. Are we having a fun lesson today? Yes, we are. We're learning about geography, of course, we're having fun. So it's so that relentless approach and that unforgiving approach for wanting them to be more knowledgeable citizens of the future. And, and I think eventually, even at the, even at the start, if you get that kickback, you need to keep going, because they will appreciate it. And like I say, I've been in this new school for six or seven weeks. And, and I've gone in with that same approach. And yes, initially, people may have thought, oh, so it's a bit strict, maybe. Well, that's how they see it. Maybe strict or or uh, he does, he's not, doesn't do anything fun, but actually they see the value in it. And when they see how much they're recording knowledge and and when they see you've got that love and you, you've got that drive for them to be um, successful, then they'll actually have that buy-in with you. I think that's really important. Don't give in, basically. Don't give in. Be consistent. Believe in your subject. Believe that the pupils can do it, and um, don't give in to any sort of uh, fads or or fun lessons or invert commas and carousel activities and and all sorts. Yeah.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much, Michael. My final question to you is: What do you think gets in the way most of, of just great teaching in our classrooms?
0: The red tape around school policies, I think, and I think that too many policies tie teachers up in knots, and therefore, there's a, I suppose, there's a moral dilemma as a teacher, isn't there? Ultimately, I could say I, everything I've said this evening could be completely against school policy and practices, and therefore, you have that moral dilemma as a teacher: do you do, you do what's right as a teacher, or do you do what's right? um for the school that you're working at and i think there's obviously a very careful <laughs> balance in that because ultimately we're we, we are in a job and we have to sort of um meet the expectations of the school and, and i fully understand that and i think that sometimes it may be about have, have like maybe saying to um your line manager or your head of the department, have you thought about have you thought about this could we could we give this a try and any good leader wouldn't say No, we're not doing it. I'm not listening to it. It's not happening. Any good leader would embrace your sort of suggestion and say, okay, let's unpick it. Why do you think this would work? And if you've got that why, as I said, if you've got that why, you'll have that potentially that buy-in and um, opportunity maybe to trial something. But I think obviously sometimes it's not about going in guns blazing, oh, we should do this, we should do that. Um, but going and saying, Oh, have we thought about this and maybe give this a try. And I think that a lot of the time it's that red tape or it's that unwillingness of leaders to, um, to embrace change. And I think that it's that saying, isn't it? If, um, that whole idea, if you, if you, um, if you stand still, then everyone else behind you is just going to overtake you. And, uh, so I'll say oh, we have always done it this way. But that doesn't mean that it's the it's the right way. So it
1: certainly does. Well, well thank you very much for, for your input, input for the final three, and thank you so much for, for such an informative uh, interview that you've given. I and highly recommend that, that listeners go ahead go ahead and 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 buy craft and, and pre-order the feedback pendulum. I certainly have, and I thoroughly look forward to, to, to read to reading that and I'm sure it'll be just just as good if not better as as reading craft so thank you very much and thank you very much for giving up your time this evening to come on the becoming educated podcast
0: no thanks thanks everyone i hope hope you enjoyed listening to my ramblings on and um don't say michael said go and do this because this will work because uh you might get me in trouble so but um but yeah no thanks for having me down i appreciate it thank you for listening to the becoming educated podcast until next time Teach with joy.